Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, whom saints and angels delight to worship in heaven, be ever present with your servants who seek through art and music and service to perfect the praises offered by your people on earth and grant to them even now glimpses of your beauty and make them worthy at length to behold it unveiled forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Welcome to the forum. That collect is the collect for church musicians and artists. And I thought it was an appropriate prayer to start off this open meeting of the worship committee. We're having a bit of a different start to the church year than I would have anticipated or maybe even wished uh, as we are worshiping in Mitchell Hall. And I thought it was important as we get together, as we kick off our breakfast season, to mark that and to talk about it and to see how we're doing. This is our third Sunday in the space, and I've been receiving some feedback. Uh, Some of it is difficult. You know, one of the pieces of feedback I received this morning is, hey, Mike, Mitchell Hall's roof is leaking a little bit. Uh, Yep. So it, it hasn't been until today. We've got roofers coming out anyway because we've got a big old roof and lots of issues. Um... And there is a, the roof on Mitchell Hall is only from 2012, so it shouldn't be leaking. So it should be a pretty easy fix, but we'll have them out this week to fix it. But in the meantime, watch out for the seat that's under the bucket. Or, yeah. Um, other, wor- other feedback I've gotten, uh, and, and I do want to talk through Mitchell Hall, involves how we're doing communion, ushers not knowing where to go, uh, not knowing how processions are supposed to flow. So... We'll, we'll talk through all of that. And I'm not going to promise that we'll have final solutions because, as I said in my first email before we started worshiping in Mitchell Hall, we're going to be camping out for a while. And when you're camping out, you sort of make stuff work. Uh, so we'll be making stuff work. But I do hope that we have a chance to talk a little bit about Mitchell Hall. Before we get there, and I want to leave that at the end so that we have the most chance to discuss, I want to talk a little bit about uh, worship, and I want to talk. At the I've asked the members of the worship committee to be present today, and a number of them are. Uh, but I want to talk through a few liturgical changes that we've been talking through, whether or not we are in Mitchell Hall. Um, but before I do any of that, I thought I would spend a few minutes talking about our tradition and worship. So I don't do this that often, but I, I'd love to do a show of hands. Um, how many of you grew up? Episcopalian. Okay. How many of you grew up evangelical, Lutheran, any kind of anything that I would consider on the Protestant side, to the Protestant direction of Episcopalian, Baptist, Presbyterian? Okay. How many of you grew up Roman Catholic? Ah, interesting. So I I often tell folks... um, when I describe Holy Communion, that like a lot of Episcopal churches, we are about one-third folks who grew up Episcopalian, one-third folks who grew up some more evangelical tradition, and one-third people who grew up Roman Catholic. And today is pretty close to that. You know, the breakfast crowd and the folks that make it out in, on Sunday morning may be a particular sample of the church. But or about a third, a third, a third. And so I like to start today by talking a little bit about how the Episcopal Church does worship, 
how that might be a little bit different than what you grew up in, especially if you grew up Roman Catholic or you grew up more evangelical. Uh, and I'm using evangelical in the broader kind of international sense of the word evangelical. Uh, evangelical in the United States has come to be a tagline for sort of the, um, the religious right or the, um, the Jerry Falwell crowd. And I don't think that's actually fair in German or in Spanish or really anywhere else in the world. Evangelical is a word for Protestant. Um, you talk about the evangelical church in Latin America and you just mean the Protestants. So when I say evangelical, know that I'm using that interchangeably with Protestant, whether or not that's the way it normally fits for you. So the Episcopal Church is a bit of a weird bird. Um, those of you who grew up in it know that well. Those of you who have joined it probably joined it partly for that reason. But it, it does worship a little bit differently than other traditions do. We're Sometimes um, some of our churches try to be more Catholic than the Catholics, uh, but I always say they're doomed to fail because we're not organized that way. Um, we don't try normally to be more Protestant than the Protestants because, boy, those Protestants can protest pretty hard. Um, but, but we're a church that straddles. Um, since the very beginning of our movement of Anglicanism, we're a church that straddles two sensibilities about what worship is, what worship means, and how it works. So I want to start off with a little bit of a disclaimer, and it's sort of an awkward one for me to start off with, but it's this. Worship in the Episcopal Church is not decided by committee. So we have a worship committee at Holy Communion, and I, and I do try to get some consensus and advice from the committee, but our local committee doesn't have the power to make a lot of decisions about our worship. Um, and a lot of the responsibility for worship lies on the rector uh, at the church because there are vows that I take and promises I make to the bishop and to the wider body that I'm bound by. And so there are certain things like uh, if Bob Lewis wanted us to start using um, for our service, uh, and I can guarantee you Bob Lewis wouldn't want this, but if Bob wanted us to start using the Presbyterian Book of Worship, I would have to say, I'm sorry, Bob, even if the worship committee is voting with you, I can't say yes to that uh, because I'm not allowed to by our general convention. Uh, so we're a church of, that's, we, we consider ourselves an ordered church in that priests have a certain responsibility to set worship and a responsibility to the wider body. And there are specific books, I brought several of them with me, that are what we call authorized texts. I'm going to set aside the hymnals for just a second. So we have a set of texts that are authorized for worship in the Episcopal Church. The best known is this. What's this? The Book of Common Prayer. Anybody know the publication date of this Book of Common Prayer? 1979. So this is the 1979 and current Book of Common Prayer for the Episcopal Church. And it's, um, it's our, our norm for worship in the Episcopal Church. This is the default mode. And if you go into most Episcopal churches these days... What you will find is um, they are doing, and I brought this particular one on purpose because uh, my old boss, Luis, used to say, when you open your Book of Common Prayer, uh, turn to the dirty pages. Um, and you can see there's a section of um, pages in this 1979, and it's true in all of our um, uh, pew copies, that there's a section that is like pulled out a little bit and, and it's the most well-worn. And if you turn to it, those pages are Holy Eucharist Rite 1 and Holy Eucharist Rite 2. 
so if you go to most Episcopal churches these days, what you will find is that there is an early morning service, usually at 8 o'clock, and they are doing Holy Eucharist Rite 1. Holy Eucharist Rite 1 is our version of the Latin Mass in the Episcopal Church in some ways. Uh, because the Episcopal Church is just Protestant enough that most folks don't want to go to Latin Mass, but it's just traditional enough that most people want to hear Shakespearean English when they go to church. Um, so you've got really fun language in this. My mom's favorite one, which she, when she was in seminary, my mom happens to be here today, she's also an Episcopal priest. When mom was in seminary, one of her favorite phrases, and one that we sat around the kitchen table practicing, was innumerable benefits procured unto us by the same. Um, it's part of one of the Eucharistic prayers. Ignore Silas. We're, I'm getting used to this like baby crying while I talk thing. Um, but but it uses language like vouchsafe to bless. Holy Communion did worship with right one for a, a long time um, and then 15 years ago or so decided not to. Was it 15? Not 15? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Eight, the 8 o'clock service. The 8 o'clock service, I think it was about 15 years ago. It was close to the beginning of Brooke Meyer's um, rectorate that um, the 8 o'clock service changed from Rite 1 to Rite 2. Rite 2 is language that comes from 1979. And so um, it's probably the most well-known for folks who have been in the Episcopal Church for a while. Um, it's got all of the versions of... The Lord's, well, the Lord's Prayer is the one thing in Rite 2 that we keep that Shakespearean language because everybody's got to memorize from Sunday school and they don't want to um, give up Our Father who art in heaven. So that's, that sounds like Rite 1, but it's actually in Rite 2. At Holy Communion, we do the prayer book sometimes. But this is a congregation that's a little more progressive than others in the Episcopal Church. And so we use a set of Eucharistic prayers most often from this little book. This is called Enriching Our Worship. Enriching Our Worship, like the prayer book, is a collection of prayers that was set forth by the General Convention of the Episcopal Church. So a meeting of the Episcopal Church that involves lay elected deputies, clergy elected deputies, and all of the bishops have to vote on our prayers. And so the Eucharistic prayers we use especially um, are set out texts from the General Convention. So every once in a while, somebody will look at me and say something like, Mike, why'd you change the creed? And my response is, I did change the creed. The General Convention gave us a different option for the creed, and we're using that. But I don't have the power to change the creed as a priest. Yeah, not even, not yet. Like, they're not going to give you that power, not on the creed. So, so Enriching Our Worship was created especially to do a few things. Um, the creed is a really interesting one. The creed in Enriching Our Worship, the biggest change you'll notice is that the Holy Spirit no longer proceeds and from the Son. And, and for a while, some of us were tripping over that. We would say, the Holy Spirit which proceeds from the Father. And people were still saying, and from the Son. We're really used to that. That's the prayer book language. But this came out after a dialogue on the international level between the Anglican Communion, um, our our body of international church as Episcopalians, and the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox, um, that are in communion with the Archbishop in Constantinople. Um, and the Orthodox and Anglicans came together and they asked, 
if we wanted to be in closer union with our Orthodox sisters and brothers, if we would stop saying that line, and from the Son. Because part of the reason the Orthodox and the Roman Catholics split from one another in 1000 AD was because the um, Roman Church added that little line, and from the Son. And the church in Constantinople said, nope, we're not doing that, you're changing the creed. And so they've asked us if we could drop that line. And so we've agreed to try out dropping that line. So in our provisional creed, the one that we're using right now, that's why we dropped that. But it gives you the sense of, I, I bring that up partly because I'm a, a liturgy nerd, a worship nerd, but I also bring that up partly because it gives you a sense of where these decisions are made. That decision wasn't made by the worship committee or the Vestry of Holy Communion. It was asked for by an international commission and our, um, and our church-wide body that mostly covers the United States but covers some churches in a few other countries um, for the Episcopal Church said, okay, in this trial version of the creed, we're going to drop that little line that we've been doing for a thousand years so that we can be closer with our Eastern sisters and brothers. The other reason this book came out, and probably the strongest reason why we choose to use it a lot at Holy Communion, is that the prayers in Enriching Our Worship tend toward balanced language for gender. So if you go to the prayer book, you'll notice that God is always He. Um, and there's a really heavy God our Father. There's never any language about God our Mother. There's never any language about the Divine Feminine. Part of what Enriching Our Worship tries to do is to not neutralize the gender of God, not just say God everywhere where you would say He, but to bring in images of the Divine that are feminine. Um, so you'll notice in some of our Eucharistic prayers, um, question, or words like, um, you enclose the sea when it burst out from the womb. Most of that imagery comes right out of Scripture. Uh, the Divine Feminine is there in Scripture, often in the background, but there in Scripture. And so Enriching Our Worship is trying to bring out a balance. Uh, it's up to you, and, and we could tell our deputation what we think about whether they're striking a good balance. But they try to bring a balance. They try to bring Divine Feminine images into the liturgy. And that's something as a congregation that values welcome, diversity, and community gender diversity in our imagery for God has been important and tends to be why we lean over to enriching our worship. So the other books that are important to know that they are sent down to us from on high are the hymnals. Now we supplement our hymnals a little bit at Holy Communion. We use stuff from other supplemental hymnals. Most of it has been approved by General Convention. But you have to know in the Episcopal Church, the hymnals are sacred texts. Um, we get our texts from the General Convention of the Episcopal Church, and in order to be a hymn in the Episcopal Church, something has to make it through not one, but two general conventions. And so our hymnal is from 1982 currently. Um, Lift Every Voice and Sing is on equal footing with the hymnal 1982 in the mind of the Episcopal Church. It is the, it is called, the subtitle is An African American Hymnal. But the hope of this hymnal was, like with the gendered question of enriching our worship, to bring sacred music that has been sacred to the black church into the Episcopal church, which includes um, some black church. And so to lift that voice up and not marginalize it, we have given Lift Every Voice and Sing equal footing with the, um, the hymnal 1982. 
We also use some music at Holy Communion from additional supplemental hymnals that seek again to balance questions of gender and to bring even more cultural traditions into our music. The last is the Bible. Um, so we don't get to pick uh, just any old translation of the Bible in the Episcopal Church. Again, we did make that kind of a decision at the churchwide body. So the Bible that is most often used in Episcopal churches right now is this one. It's called the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. And part of the reason why that was an important thing for the Episcopal Church to take up, like the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, in the late 70s and early 80s, we went through a lot of liturgical change in the Episcopal Church. Any of you Episcopalians remember that time and the new prayer book and people getting frustrated with it? Anybody remember people leaving over the new prayer book? The other thing about, um, we did it over the Bible translation too. About that time was when this translation of the Bible came out, the New Revised Standard Version. And folks were adopting all of this new language at once. So we went from most Episcopal churches using the King James Version, with all of its lows and thous and vouchsafes, to the NRSV, which is in relatively modern English, and tends to do things like when the Greek um, says, my brothers, and when the translations in English before would have said, my brothers, well, the NRSV will say, well, that Greek is not actually you know, just my brothers. It could also be my brothers and sisters. And so Paul will say, my brothers and sisters, NRSV was ahead of its time in 1979. At Holy Communion, we've taken another step on that, unsurprisingly. Um, there's a new version of scripture that's um, the most recent one that's been done at an ecumenical level. The NRSV was translated by Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Lutherans, even some Roman Catholics together, done by biblical scholars. We are right now using the Common English Bible. Common English Bible only came out in the last 10 years, and it was um, translated by the most diverse group of biblical scholars ever to come together on a translation. It's also the group that featured the most women ever to work together on a biblical translation. The other thing that you'll notice on the CEB, the Common English Bible, that we've been reading all through the summer, is that it trips people up a little bit less. Uh, the Common English Bible was intentionally written uh, between a fifth and seventh grade reading level. And that was done, that, that can sound a little depressing. Um, it's okay if that depresses you a little bit. Um, I joke with people at Holy Communion, sometimes it can be very hard if we need to find a new treasurer uh, because it's a congregation full of librarians and English teachers and that kind of folk. Um, so if it depresses you a little bit, that's okay. But, but hear this, it was done for a couple of reasons. One. Um, they say the average American reads at a 5th to 7th grade reading level. Even the New York Times is trying to find its voice mostly there these days. The other reason is it makes the language more accessible for speakers of other languages, for immigrant communities, for folks for whom English is not their first language. And so having the Common English Bible hit at a level of 5th to 7th grade really helps. The other thing it does is it helps us to hear scripture in the language of our day. Even the NRSV is pretty complicated. It's, it's up there at like a 12th grade reading level. And so that language, especially when you get into the prophets or into Paul, can be really tricky. And you'll notice it for our readers. 
I've noticed this summer, our readers are tripping up. I mean, I can't do anything about the list of names, like the one that poor Elizabeth had today, Onesimus and Apphia, and you can't do anything about those. But the, the phraseology, the way it flows, tends to be a little bit easier in the Common English Bible. So we decided to do that for the summer. So those are all reflections on where we get our stuff, um, where worship comes from. I want to say just a really quick word um, before we launch into some discussion about worship, the way that we're doing it in Mitchell Hall. When we were looking at Mitchell Hall, when we were trying to set up Mitchell Hall, um, I came back from paternity leave for the day to make sure we got it set up the way that I had it in my mind. Uh, partly because Mitchell Hall is actually a pretty tricky place to worship. It's, it's, a, it's, not the, it's not as big of a space as it looks, we were discovering. Um, but we had an opportunity with Mitchell Hall um, to try to set up worship in a way that worked and flowed. And because of where doors are, and because of, I, I thought, let's try worshiping in the three-quarter round. Partly I wanted to do that because, you know, you can get away with anything when it's only going to be a couple of months that you're going to be doing it that way. And partly I wanted to do it because I've worshipped in a number of Episcopal churches that have intentionally changed their architecture to be a little bit in the round. And when I talk with folks at Holy Communion about what we value, about why it is that we've decided to worship at Holy Communion, I kept hearing similar things, which is, we like to gather together. We like to come together across diversity. We like to share the table. The way that we're set up right now asks us to think about and be in space differently. We are literally gathered around. We're a lot closer to that Eucharistic table than we are when we're um, when it's you know at least 20 feet away from the front pew, um, like it is upstairs in the church. And you have to see one another in Mitchell Hall in a way that you don't have to when we're all facing the same direction have to run into each other's elbows and make room to get around each other and and you're facing if you're facing this way and seeing the altar you've got people right there you might catch one another's eye um, sometime when the priest says something stupid in the sermon or um, when somebody trips over something in the Eucharistic prayer or when Silas screams out at a particularly opportune time during the prayers of people you know you, you might catch each other's eyes in ways that remind you that part of our Eucharistic theology comes from this idea that Jesus shared his table with all the wrong people. That Jesus gathered a crowd around him and, and brought unexpected folks. And, and worshiping this way causes us to encounter one another in a way that I think matches some of the trajectory that we're seeing in the way that our prayer books and our supplemental texts and the way that Holy Communion has been choosing its Eucharistic prayers and theology. I think this worship in the round, I don't want to say it's the end-all and be-all for us, but I think it's an informative thing to do. I think it, it, it helps us to see um, one another a little bit differently, to see this Eucharistic theology a little bit differently. I wonder if there are any responses to that so far, and then I'll bring you my worship committee agenda. Questions, thoughts? Quiet. All right, I'll change that. I'm going to give you some very specific questions. 
So the Worthier Committee has a few things that we need to make a decision about, and I thought I would open this up with the whole group here. One is scripture translation. Through the summer, we've been using that common English Bible. Um, in our default, traditionally, has been the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Uh, I'm not going to promise past Advent. We just have to make a decision between now and the end of November. But what do folks think about sticking with the NRSV versus the Common English Bible? Any strong opinions on that? What have you thought about it? Not having been <coughs> here for the summer. Yeah. I haven't heard the alternatives. Okay. So I'd like to continue. Andy would like to hear the alternatives because he was on vacation all summer. But there's a number of folks in that place. Bob? Uh, I like it because if you're familiar with the lectionary, you've yeah. heard the same passage last 10, 15 years. Yeah. Because it uses a different vocabulary, it jars you. Yeah. And it makes you think a little bit more about what's actually being said. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting. I mean, I've definitely noticed that as a preacher, and I know other preachers in our midst have noticed that as well. You get to a particular lectionary text, and you're like, oh, wait, I know what this normally says. And it's not saying quite that. Ooh, that's tricky. And it, it's it's something that you want. that I want to ask you about. I actually didn't prep the worship committee for this one, but I'm going to add it. 
Um, we have been experimenting. Uh, at the worship committee sent this up to the vestry, and the vestry made it a um, goal. The vestry is actually thinking through our goals for the next year and, and reinterpreting our now four years left on five-year goals. But one of the goals that we've talked about around diversity of worship is Spanish in the liturgy. So you might have noticed that we've got the Lord's Prayer in Spanish and in English. We've been intentionally using more Spanish. Sometimes we've added some different Spanish prayers in. Um, we've intentionally been using some more Spanish in the music as well. October, I'm, I'm jumping on um, Shirley Mensa's um, committee meeting that's happening later, um, but our, we've got a group called the Beloved Community um, Group that is looking into all of our questions around diversity. Um, one of the things that we're looking at is how we mark um, heritage months and moments where we celebrate particular diversity. October is our National Latinx Heritage Month. So I would propose to the worship committee that we actually, and especially now that we have another priest who's fully bilingual, um, Lori also speaks Spanish, that we do the Eucharistic prayer at least through October bilingual. Um, that 90% of the congregational responses will still be in English. There'll be options for Spanish. But that we put the priests in Spanish a little bit more. So that's our proposal. What are your thoughts on Spanish and the liturgy? Gene. Yeah, we do have a number of folks, nobody in this room that I'm seeing. Um, we do have a number of folks. We've got about four, I was counting the other day. We've got about four families, um, all of whom are due in the last five years, um, that grew up at least with some Spanish in the home. Um, so that is a growing population for us at Holy Community. I think Spanish, the way we've been using it, is a wonderful thing. I would say, though, I would like to have the traditional wording of the Sanctus back. Oh. But, but um, you know, whether it's English or Spanish, I don't care. Yeah. And, but I find myself a little disturbed at the idea of not being able to
October, but it'll be October. Uh, don't don't worry about it too much, and and we'll try to find ways. If you've got a really strong opinion about what should or should not happen, I'm I'm hearing Denise, and we'll at least print out the enriching worship prayer that we'll have as an option for people to pick up if they want to see the English, um, so that you know what we're saying. Uh, let's get us to that. Brings us to are we using enriching our worship? So enriching our worship um, is what we've been using for a while now. Um, we've rotated between the three prayers in Enriching Our Worship. There are three Eucharistic prayers, and we're on the longest of them now, prayer one. Um, but I wonder, are there folks feeling... We also, in the Easter season, I think, and last summer, uh, we were using prayers from the General Convention that were authorized that aren't printed in that book, but that General Convention last summer created a set of authorized liturgies that were versions of the prayer book that unlike enriching our worship, it wasn't trying to create balanced imagery, but it was trying to just strip out masculine pronouns everywhere it could, um, so to, to make it a little bit more gender neutral. So those are also an option out there. But I wonder if there are folks feeling really strongly about enriching our worship, prayer book, anybody want to go back to write one? Where are you on that right now? 
wants to go back to the right one, I think you're probably going to be outvoted. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm at the other end of the spectrum. Is there any change on the use of the New Zealand word? No, not, not with this bishop. There might be a change in our next bishop. But th that's the other thing. The bishop plays a lot of role in what liturgical texts can be authorized. There are many dioceses, the other two dioceses that I've been a priest of, would allow you to use a liturgical text from another church in the Anglican Communion, the New Zealand prayer book, or prayers from the Church of England. Our bishop has a blanket prohibition against any non-American prayer book. Um, and he does that because he's worried about cultural appropriation. I think he's a little over-worried about that, particularly about appropriating culture from England. Um, but, but he and I disagree on this. So we'll see where the next bishop, we'll have a new bishop in spring. We'll see where the next bishop comes. foreign 
lot of Central Americans to Mexicans to, and so there is this classism that was built into the translation. So they're actually, the, the General Convention has been loosening its restrictions on the Spanish translation, because all the translations have to be approved by convention, and very, at this point, still very few people who are elected to convention speak Spanish. Um, so the convention is, is starting to repent of that sin and is loosening some things up um, and is creating, it, it's tasked with creating new translations. Right now, they're not available. But when they did Enriching Our Worship, there are official translations of Enriching Our Worship. Um, they were not done in that way, and they tend to be more of the people. But they've, in Latin America still, um, printing is not something, like the bulletins that we print, it takes a lot of technical expertise. If we didn't have a full-time person, we couldn't do the kind of bulletins we do. And so that's really rare in Latin America. So they tend to use the books that have been donated or that they've been able to buy that they've had, um, just because it's practically more capable. So we would probably use it, be using Enriching Our Worship. I'm hearing sort of a Enriching Our Worship is where we probably want to stay on the inclusive language thing. So when we do bilingual, we'll probably be using a bilingual from Enriching Our Worship. Oh, that's actually not true. So this is something else that's interesting. Most Latino, and so if they're, they're used to a traditional kind of Catholic-ish worship, um, this is this gets us into, we already talked about we're not as loose as the Protestants, I can't just make decisions as I want to. I had friends who were Methodists in seminary, and they would go to classes on worship and about like curating a worship service, and my Episcopal colleagues and I would all go, what? Like, the Episcopal way of worship is open to page 355, start reading. You know, like you don't curate worship in the Episcopal Church in the same way that you do it Methodist or Presbyterian. The Roman is the total opposite. You don't have any, any discretion in a Roman tradition. So much so that right now, actually right to, um, and this gets into a whole bunch of nerdery, but the, the parts that are handed to the congregation, like the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, um, the Sanctus, uh, the Gloria, most of those translations in our prayer book actually didn't originate with the Episcopal Church. They originated with an international committee and there were international ecumenical committees on Spanish in the liturgy, on English in the liturgy. And the idea was, this was the late 60s, early 70s, it was in the spirit of Vatican II, and there were a lot of people that were trying to look at church unity. And so um, they tried to create a version of the Lord's Prayer that Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Methodists, UCC, everybody, with Catholics even, would say. Um, they tried to do a version of the creed that that would be the case. The sad thing is, the Episcopal Church is about the only church that is stuck with but the Romans did for a long time in English. And, um, and, and just recently, in the last 10 years, when Cardinal Ratzinger became Pope, when it was Pope Benedict XVI, he forced a change. So the way that we do the prayers, especially the Nicene Creed um, and the Lord's Prayer, which are the two longest pieces the congregation does, it's actually closer to what most Catholics that grew up with Vatican II are used to um, than what the Catholic churches are doing today. That's also true in Spanish. Spanish, it hasn't been forced that change, but the way that we do the Our Father and the way that we do the Sanctus and all of those pieces, they're the exact same wording that you would hear in a Roman Catholic church in Latin America. So um, so the pieces that the congregation says, at least, Latinos have memorized from their upbringing if they were Roman Catholic. That's a long answer, I'm sorry. So I'm hearing enriching our worship is okay. If Denise was in charge, we'd be doing all right one all the time. But we know Denise and in charge, um, and, uh, but 
I'm hearing um, enriching our worship is, is, I'm not hearing a lot of protest against using enriching our worship. Okay, we'll keep with enriching our worship. We'll probably vary the prayers again. Um, we might do prayer two and prayer three. I, I like those a little bit better than the one we're doing right now, partly because they're not as long. Um, other things for the worship committee. Oh, prayers of the people. So we have different prayers of the people that we tend to use from the prayer book because they didn't do new ones for enriching our worship. They tend to be pretty gender balanced anyway. Um, prayers of the people is actually one of the things we do have total discretion over. They're not mandated to be read exactly as they are. But I like the rhythms that are in the prayer book, prayers of the people. We've been alternating between prayer three and prayer six, um, partly because I like the congregation having responses that are just not, not just, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer, that we, we say things like, for all people in their daily life and work, for our families, friends, and neighbors, and those who are alone. I think it helps people keep paying attention. Um, but we've been alternating those. Do we have any strong opinions on prayers of the people? Bob? Uh, we don't have enough pause. Enough pause? Yeah, especially when you're asked for your own prayers or your own thoughts. I can think about three people at Shango and keep moving forward. So that, that gets into the, we have we have intercessors and, and, and readers and everybody, you know, like we, we did this as a committee of the worship committee, but I invited all the readers. And So if you're an intercessor, you'll notice today we did put in every time you're invited to add your own prayers silently or aloud. You're invited to add your own prayers silently or aloud for the prayers, for the thanksgivings, for those who are departed. The, the intercessor is supposed to say that. Give it a little bit more space than feels comfortable to you when you're up there on the podium feeling a little nervous. I am happy as long as we continue to use any of the books that are in the air. Okay. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, there are some online that you can download that I find a lot of it really weird and they tend to just be really long. Um, and I like the prayer book because it has a little bit of brevity to it, it covers all the bases. No strong opinions. Okay, we're going to keep going between three and six then. Last question. Oh, eight o'clock anthems. Those of you who are 1030 years don't know this, but at eight o'clock, um, we have a, I like to, I like to stick to um, what is authorized, but I also like to experience the breadth of what is authorized. And so for a lot of Episcopalians that go to write one service at eight o'clock, all that they ever do at the opening of the service is glory to God in the highest and peace to um, his people on earth, Lord God, heavenly king, the glory. That is actually not the only option. Um, you can do all sorts of anthems, uh, and there are authorized anthems, and you can, I mean, the anthem is a, uh, Scott Gunn, who's, the, uh, who's an Episcopal priest and a, and a writer, said an anthem is a door wide enough to drive a truck through, um, which is true. But we've been using a number of different anthems, uh, often scriptural texts or poems from Julian of Norwich or something like that at the 8 o'clock service. Um, a lot of it, again, trying to get some balanced um, language or different imagery for God in there. And we just haven't reflected on it since I just started doing it. And I wonder if anybody has any strong feelings about the anthems at 8 o'clock. I don't have, like, strong feelings. Yeah, I, I like it. Yeah. I like it. It's something different yeah. each day, each Sunday. And 
got it memorized. So I like to give it to folks sometimes because it's nice to have what you know sometimes, but it's also fun to have something different. Well, at 10.30, I would say the number one on my wish list would be to have the Gloria King Schultz So we're going to do the Gloria. Um, I have to look at the list of hymns, but we are going to be doing a couple different versions of the Gloria. There's a really fun um, English and Spanish one that is the original um, Gloria text. We're going to be doing a little bit more Gloria. I do like the idea of getting the hymn of praise because, frankly, I don't really love any of the settings of the Gloria in the hymnal. Um, I'm not really attached to any of them, so I like using hymn of praise sometimes, but I have been feeling like uh, we need to get the Gloria back in there. So we're doing it a couple times this fall. This is a little left field, but yeah. what, what is the permitted use for the Apostles' Creed? So the Apostles' Creed is not permitted during the Eucharist. It's during um, morning and evening prayer. So that's where you get the Apostles' Creed. So the, the, the creed that we say during Eucharist is the Nicene Creed. Um, unless something like Starsky Wilson is coming to preach and they need to cut time and then you can cut the creed out every once in a while. But when we do a creed, which is most of the time, it'll be the Nicene Creed. One of the authorized versions would be the prayer book or original worship.
I, it's not something I. My, Rebecca, when she was interim rector, had like a bell and was trying to stop people from doing the piece, and I just find that super awkward. So I'm not going to do anything like that. What? Yeah, no, it's, it, it ends up feeling like the Oscars, right? Like they're trying to play you off and you're still talking. So I'll just start announcements when it's time to start announcements. So let's. Uh, this brings us to. So I've covered all of my things for the worship committee. I think I've got consensus on things. This brings us to how worship is working right now. So, um, Kara, are you in How Stuff's Going in Mitchell Hall? We're in that territory. Go ahead.
you're doing standing communion need to be at least 12 feet away from the bread basket. And it's really awkward because when you're doing the chalice and people are coming up to you, you want to walk to them. That doesn't work because then the chalice gets closer and closer to the bread basket and it takes longer to receive wine than it takes to receive bread and it just slows the whole communion down. So I'm going to have dots on the floor and chalices are going to stay there. And if you need to come get communion, you need to walk to the chalice. And I'm going to say that at the announcements, but it's part of the making flow work when you're doing standing communion. You've got to have some space between the bread and the chalice or everything gets gummed up. And it's awkward, but it's just it's the way it has to work. Other reflections. Greeters. How many of you have served as a greeter? Thank you, thank you. So greeters. Greeter is a new office at Holy Communion, and it's something that's very important. Um, the main job of the greeter is to go hang out behind the welcome table after the service, right before Chester does the dismissal, to sneak up there and help people find sign-ups and help people find welcome cards. Uh, it's great to have a greeter around at the beginning to help the ushers, but really the main thing of a greeter, I know there's been some confusion, is to get behind the welcome table after the service so that there's somebody to talk to. If you have, if you get here 10 minutes early and check out and make sure you understand where all the sign-ups are, that would be great. The other thing with greeters right now is we're asking everyone to wear name tags. So helping people get a name tag, they're printed out so you can write on them, um, or find their um, printed out or sign up for one of the reusable name tags. That's I got our upstairs and talk to ushers. Jean, one last word. Thank you.